This is Lives of Adventure, and I'm your prodigal host, Jeff Gardner. As a few of you will have noticed, it's been quite a few months since I've released an interview. My own life has been a little more adventure-filled of late. In these intervening months, we have moved from our home in the Italian Alps to Dublin in Ireland. Yes, it's a very long story. Just ask some other time. And actually, just a few weeks ago, we welcomed our third kid into the family. But enough with the excuses. Onward and upward with the episodes. This week's guest is Ian Miller. Ian is a Scottish transplant who now lives in Donegal, which is way up on the northwestern corner of Ireland. And Ian is a fascinating character. And I do mean character in all the best senses of that word. My first exposure to Ian was through an absolutely hair-raising YouTube video of him climbing a sea stack. It's shot from a GoPro that is attached to his head, which means that you get a first-person perspective of the entire approach and the climb. Oh, and I nearly forgot to mention, he's soloing the entire thing without a rope. You can actually hear the excitement and the fear in his voice throughout the entire clip. And it gives me chills just thinking about it. So with that stage set, I think it's probably better that I just call this intro done and turn it over to the interview. So please enjoy my conversation with none other than Ian Miller. Ian, thank you so much for joining me in the podcast uh, today, and I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Uh, I would say, I would venture or hazard a guess that many of uh, my listeners out there probably don't know what a C-Stack even is. So perhaps we can start out with just you telling us what in the world a C-Stack is. Uh, a C-Stack, simply put, is... It's a piece of rock that used to be connected to a cliff, but over thousands of years, the seas battered it and removed all the rock from around it to create a pillar that sits pretty much out in the sea, usually at the base of very big cliffs. So you're looking, you're looking at a piece of rock. Uh, it, has, it has to have a technical interest. So you're talking, say, a 50 to 100 metres piece of rock sticking out like a shark's tooth and surrounded by massive, uh, inescapable cliffs. Right. Uh, and I guess, you know, the, the image that immediately comes to mind for me is, uh, an image, I think it's in Tasmania. It's a a route called the totem pole, um, that I think is off the coast of Tasmania. And it's just, you know, exactly what you described a finger of rock just sticking up out of the, you know, ocean that's battering it on all sides. That's it. The the totem pole is one of the most famous, made famous really by Paul Pritchard, the, uh, the British uh, climber that got paralyzed by the block that fell off him right it's been climbed quite a number of times the candlestick's a bigger one beside it so yeah you're on the right track man that's what we're talking big pieces of rock sticking out the sea and you have sort of made a name for yourself by uh going around county donegal which is in the northwest of ireland uh and climbing basically i mean maybe not all of them but most of the sea stacks off the coast there is that right there's one left there's 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 pretty much a hundred sea stacks. There's a lot more uh, islands and scaries and things, but mm-hmm. there's, there's pretty much a hundred rock cl- of interest to rock climbers. There's one unclimbed, a uh, big one unclimbed that's not been done yet. And I, I keep looking at it every time I'm in a certain place and it's, an, it's starting to annoy me. But the rest of them have, have, have all been climbed. Uh, 
four or five had been climbed before and all the rest were, were there were first ascents. First ascents. And yeah. why has that one remained? I, I call it the chaos stack because it lives two kilometers from any, well, it lives two kilometers from the nearest exit point and it lives beneath an extremely inescapable cliff. And I've been to the base of it twice, and twice I've sat and looked up and thought, "Yeah, this is this is going to be this is going to end really badly." So right. I've just paddled again. Yeah, I guess you know that's, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more. But I mean, in any adventure, that seems to be one of the. Um, one of the kind of hallmarks of somebody that lasts long in, you know, in that adventure is that they've got the ability to, to step up to it, look at it for a little while and then turn around and walk away if it doesn't feel right and, and do that multiple times sometimes. Oh, it's, it, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no like uh, equation. It's simply, you, you go out and do, you leave the house in the morning uh, and if I'm going to solo it, I'll, I'll be on my own, obviously. And when I drop the children off at school and all this sort of thing, it's then that, that, that it begins. And it usually begins with a really, really unpleasant sensation in your stomach because you now know you're off and you're going to go and do it. And it's a case of, like doing all adventure sports, you simply, you cross off what you think and what you don't know in two different com- compartments. And you just quell what you're, what you're ne- the negativity. You're fighting against negativity the whole time. And it's a long process. You drive, you get your boat, you inflate it, or you get a kayak and you paddle out and you're getting closer and closer to where you're going. And sometimes you just think, yeah, that'll, that'll do. <laughs> you just do a couple of pictures in a U-turn and you don't think anything more of it. You've just, you've just dodged a bullet. Uh, and it's, it's the same, for, you say, for all, for all people doing things that are perhaps a little bit uh, risky. You just know when to walk away. And I guess, you know, you mentioned there that you do a lot of these climbs uh, solo by yourself, uh, no ropes in a lot of cases. Uh, I've watched some of the videos online. It uh, is truly terrifying. And that comes from someone who's done quite a lot of soloing. Uh, It it is not something that, you know, I I certainly wouldn't take lightly. And watching video of someone else doing it is uh, stomach turning, to say the least. What's the draw and like, what's the reason... um, you know, what's the reason you solo? Like, why solo over going with a partner? Okay, well, on a practical sense, living in, in Donegal and the West Coast here in Ireland, it's really, really quite difficult to find climbers who who want to do what, what I want to do. Uh, there are a couple of people that say they want to do it, but then you, you, you need a, a, a certain skill set. And I found it increasingly, especially in the last the first 10 years I was doing this here, I, I found it impossible to find climbing partners. So what I did was I just started soloing. And the more you do it on your own, it's, it, it sounds kind of strange, but your, your greatest ally and your greatest enemy is the same thing. It's yourself. And the only way you meet yourself, well, the only way I meet myself is to be really in the moment and pretty scared. And that's where you, you realize who you are. And it's the only way you can do it. If somebody else is there, there's always get-outs. Another thing about not having a climbing another partner with me is that if I'm on my own, it's just me that can get into trouble. But if I have another person with me, in theory, I've got 100% more chance of getting into trouble because there's now two of us. If there was three of us, I'd have 200, and so would they. So being on your own, you're actually much safer. 
what you don't have is a get out. You are pretty committed to doing what you're doing. And that's what makes it interesting, really interesting. Yeah, it's that 100% commitment. And, um, you know, one thing that I guess jumped to my mind there is, and I guess this maybe jumped to my mind because I know the rock quality in lots of parts of Western Ireland. Um, and so, I, you know, I wonder how much of that feeling of, you know, 100% more risk by having another person there, is that because sometimes the rock is not 100% compact and not 100%, you know, good for protection, but you know, if you're by yourself, you can sort of pick and choose and tread lightly versus trying to attach a rope, you know, through putting a cam or a nut in somewhere. Well, yeah, the, the, the rock, the rock, the rock varies as it does everywhere from, from just choss to absolutely immaculate, uh, sea bashed, uh, granite and quartz. One thing I always say to people is that I'm much more likely to drown than I am to fall. So the, the, the inherent risk of having other people there, uh, it's not only what you're talking about, the rock and the climbing aspect of thing, the gravity thing, mm-hmm. but you've also got Neptune, and Neptune's an equally an equally <laughs> relentless ad- adversary. adversary. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he, he knows exactly what to do to, to scupper any plans. So being on your own, it's much easier in so many respects just to, to like you say, do what you think is necessary. There's no committee. There's no debate. This is what I'm doing. I don't need to justify anything or discuss anything, if you know what I mean. Right. That's a very, very interesting take on it. Uh, you know, it's something that I guess resonates with me personally uh, because I've done quite a bit of soloing uh, in sort of Alpine territory. And, and I, you know, it makes sense. It resonates. It sort of feels right to me. But I, you know, I wonder how much of that is maybe we've both just got the same screw loose. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to tell. I think I think that the, the line between a screw loose and enlightenment is very, very small. There's a very, very small gap between between madness and, and genius. That's I think I, that's, say, I would absolutely yeah. agree with that statement. My best moments have been completely and utterly alone and pretty much on the underside of terrified and coming home. And nobody in the world knows what I've done that day. And it's really quite difficult. I don't bother telling. I do tell people now through YouTube and that sort of thing. But it's really it's really quite odd. That an advantage would be to have somebody else there. <laughs> but then it's, it's a double-edged sword as always. Right, right. And I guess on a more practical level, I mean, you mentioned dropping your kids off at school and then going off at these adventures, you know, do you have any worry in that regard? Do you have any kind of uh, feeling that, you know, potentially it's irresponsible or potentially it's, you know, it's just not the right thing to be doing, but you just can't help yourself or, you know, is that just a piece that you've made? Oh, I've, I've crossed the uh, need to do this line quite a long time ago, but I can justify, I can justify what I'm doing with simply saying when you, when you go and do, when anybody goes deliberately goes and does something which is potentially quite dangerous, either you don't plan well and something goes horribly wrong, or you plan like a lunatic to make things absolutely perfect. So you plan, you plan, you plan, and it all goes well. If you're driving down any road at any time, day or night, and cars are passing you and coming towards you, you never know who's driving the other cars. 
totally and utterly out with your control. So somebody who's not paying attention, has been drinking or phoning or having a wife, an argument with their wife coming towards you can veer off, hit you, and you're both all dead. And it happens in an instant. Whereas what I'm doing is deliberately going to places and making it as safe as possible. You're expecting the worst. So you take things to, to, to combat whatever goes wrong. Whereas you look at the amount of people who die and they're not expecting it. Nobody expects to leave the house in the morning and die. It can happen at any time for any reason, any place. By doing things, take for example, base jumping or skydiving, you're doing things and you're minimizing the risk and you're expecting to jump out that plane today. Do you know what I mean? Right. So the actual chance of something going wrong is a lot less than people. most people think. I am not a, a thrill seeker by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a middle-aged guy. I don't say things like dude and do handshakes and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty conservative. I just enjoy doing things that I'm far away from anywhere. Yeah, happen to like standing on the uh, top of small teeth sticking out of the ocean. <laughs> it's an extremely addictive place to be, man. <laughs> very cool, very cool. So I guess let's let's back up a little bit and talk just a little bit about uh, kind of how you came to be in Donegal. Um, you know, you're from Scotland originally, Northern Scotland originally, and, um, you know, as as you were saying just before we kind of hit record here, uh, if you've been to Western Ireland, you've probably been more or less to Scotland. Um, you yeah. know, what, what drew you across the, uh, the Irish Sea? Oh, same as you, man. I married an Irish girl and we moved, we moved here, uh, in, in the nineties, I was still working at sea then. So we, 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 were, we stayed here for a couple of years sort of thing. And then I was always at sea and she came with me and then we moved here full time in 2005. Uh, oh, we, married for so long we're now we're now separated and so originally it was a an irish girl yeah but when i when i first moved here i just thought yeah i'm not going to stay this is this is this is not my country etc etc right and then the sea stacks popped up and it, it kind of hooked me <laughs> yeah well, that's very interesting yeah it's a uh it's a uh, wily one that uh running into irish girls abroad and then ending up somehow in ireland <laughs> It's 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 not it's not rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently not. I've I run into a uh, surprising number of people that have pretty similar stories, and you're kind of like, oh right, okay, this is a thing. <laughs> cool. And so you know, as uh, you know, I heard about Donegal climbing, you know, a decade ago, maybe more ago, and it was uh, it was sort of a, a mythical place almost because it's you know it's quite far away from any population center in Ireland. It's pretty wild still um and the climbing like most climbing in ireland you know there's not a lot of bolts there's not a lot of protection it's uh it's pretty adventurous climbing um is that do you think that's a fair assumption has that changed in the last 10 years greatly or well yeah well, 10 years ago the, the rock climbing in donegal was predominantly in the mountains with the odds Golova had bits and pieces done. Uh, Umfin, uh, sorry, Umfin had a couple of bits and pieces done. So this, it was mainly the mountain cracks that had had most of the attention, and the islands had just started. Now, what's changed in the last ten years is this: for many different reasons, the the coast of Donegal has suddenly 
become the place to be. An awful lot to do with the Falcher Islands, Wild Atlantic Way. It's driven an awful lot of tourism. You've also got peace in the north, which is just a stone's throw from where I'm sitting. So people are now starting to venture into Ulster, especially Donegal for the first time. I mean, I'm, I'm getting people coming up to climb sea stacks with me that are travelling from all over the world. And they're coming to Donegal because it's now become the place to be. It's it's not associated as it used to be as, as, as part of Ulster, therefore it's uh, the Troubles and all that sort of thing. That's mm-hmm. kind of like in the past. And the coast, and the climbing-wise, the coast is now where everybody's climbing. It's very, quite rare to, to hear of MD climbing in the mountains of Donegal. It's, there's, there's great climbing there, don't get me wrong, but it rains a lot more and there's a lot more midges. Uh, what, <laughs> the midges always a problem in ireland oh man you you go to loch Belshade and if you, the wind's not in the right direction you're just you're just packing your tent and you're going home and you're just putting it down to a bad experience it's <laughs> really great climbing but really sheltered on all sides right the, the, the main the main climbing areas now from people visiting are obviously the islands gola and, and umfin uh, sorry oe had got a lot of press attention the last three years because a lot of guys are coming across in the UK and from uh, Belfast and they're putting up E6, E7s and they're climbing the the bigger, much more overhanging faces and it's got a lot of attention from the UK. So it's been quite quite a few teams coming across to OE the last couple of years. Uh, Critch Islands, like a, a beginner's paradise, uh, 400 routes, all five minutes from anywhere you park. They're 15, 20, 10 metres long. It's just... And between the on between the, the the crags and Critch Island, you've got sandy beaches in which children play and all this sort of thing. So it's just a lot more convenient nowadays for people to park their car, do a bit of climbing, and then they're back at the car within rather than walking for an hour and a half into the mountains to to climb the bigger faces. Right. It's just been a general shift in climbing. Very cool, and you know, from your point of view, having been there uh, for you know a decade or more. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is it a mixed thing? The amount of, I think, to safely say, at West of Donegal, there's pretty much no employment, which sounds like a, a kind of a drastic thing to say, but there's not a lot of jobs here. And there's up until last year, the year before, people didn't really visit unless they had relations or some big reason to come to Donegal. Nowadays, the last, the last two years, People are visiting with no family connections here. So climbers coming, they're going to spend money. They're going to they're going to stay in places. They're going to employ people. I mean, there's a massive amount of a very few 18 to 25-year-olds in the western Donegal. They all go to college. My son's 19. He's, he's going to college. He won't be back. Not for a while. As he says, as he says there's nothing to do. There's no, there's, there's no jobs. So hopefully with more people coming, not just climbing, but all different types of tourism there'll be more employment and therefore a more sustainable future for the younger the younger people rather than leaving as soon as they leave school so it's it's all it's all good you know what i mean yeah absolutely and you know i suppose what goes hand in hand there is that um you know there's a i suppose there's a an obligation to be sustainable about it to think about you know how you're going to manage that over the future and how to make it you know something that's sort of in balance with what everybody's coming to see, which is this wild, un, you know, really wild place uh, right on the North Atlantic. The the balance is not to change, as you say, what people are coming to see. The balance is to provide what people expect. And what people expect 
is pristine, un untouched beaches, beach to themselves if they want, climbing, which nobody else is there. And when the weather does turn a bit a bit, a bit sour, then the sea is white, crashing, and all that, all the stuff that people expect. It will be a, a, quite a long time before, if if at all, you start to get developments that's going to spoil that. I mean, Donegal itself has got over a thousand kilometres of coastline, and most of it is just visited by the occasional walker, the occasional landowner, stroke farmer, and climbers, and. It's it's a lot it's a lot of area if you know what I mean. Yeah, so that is a lot of coastline. It, it's a lot of coastline, and most of the islands are uninhabited. I mean, Gola has got no permanent residents, uh, so it's it's a winter, summer only habitation, same as uh, OA and the other islands. There's, there are there are Tory and Aaron Moore lived on crutches uh, joined by a bridge, but uninhabited islands have got a tendency to kind of heal themselves. So yeah. that they don't get many people and they don't stay long. And, it, and everybody that visits beautiful places, any place that takes effort to get to, the vast majority of people who visit understand what it means not to make a mess. Just take right. your rubbish home. Don't light fires. Take your Aldi's tents home with you. The easier places to visit are much more difficult to manage because they, they attract a lot more people. And if it's easy to get to, it doesn't, in the minds of most people, need any sort of management. There'll be bins there, there'll be toilets and all that sort of thing. So, yes, hopefully there'll be another couple of generations before that becomes a problem. Right, right. Well, that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I guess, a credit to Ireland's weather. Uh, you know, it's terrible sometimes, but it does rain a lot, and that means it does heal itself incredibly quickly. It goes back to kind of what it was before pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's it's another reason why an awful lot of people don't move and live in the West Coast. It's I've I've stayed here over ten years and I found it quite difficult to to become part of any sort of community. It's not it's like my for my ex wife for example she's got a massive family sort of five hundred six hundred of them all in a small area. So it, there's all these pockets of communities in which if you're not part of them it's actually quite difficult to to get a foothold into anywhere unless you do it unless you bring what you're going to do on your own so moving here or moving to any place in the west coast or any remote place has its trials if you know what i mean yeah. so it's things move very slowly <laughs> yeah yeah I, you know i think that is one of those one of those situations you see um you know, much less in places like the Western United States, Western Canada, a lot of those, you know, remote climbing areas will get populated by, you know, it's a small town nearby and all of a sudden, you know, it becomes the location and people start pouring in and then you've got the climbing community that's right there. Uh, but that doesn't seem to happen nearly as much in places like Ireland and, you know, uh, and, and mostly in Northern Europe, it just doesn't seem to happen. It's not the same. Well, I, I'm guessing the places in the states you're talking about, you can climb pretty much all year. A lot of them, yeah. I mean, there's definitely areas um, where you know, like Colorado. But I suppose Colorado is, you know, you switch sports, but you've got something to do all year round. Well, unless, uh, there, there's quite a number of weeks on end and days and here and there, and a, 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 quite a percentage of the year in which. You're not really, you're not really going outside for much. Right. Uh, it's very horrible cold. You can go for walks, but that soon wears thin. You can go 
paddling in the sea and all that sort of stuff. But it soon wears thin, and you, the longer you live here, the more you kind of wait for the good weather mm-hmm. rather than just getting out and doing stuff when it's bad weather. Uh, it just becomes a bit of a mission to go out when it's bad. You, you, so it, having a community of people here for, for a particular sport, take, for example, Red Bull. They, they, they fly in when the big storms are here over the winter and they go down to Mullochmore, the southern tip uh, down at Sligo, down at Donegal there. Right. And they're there for a week. They surf and they wind surf and all that sort of thing, and then they're gone. They, they, they just come for that small window. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder how much, uh, that's going to be, uh, kind of the done thing in the future. That's honestly, that's like a thing that I'm seeing. Obviously Red Bull is a massive company with a ton of money and they just like fly the whole crew in, bring all their helicopters and go crazy. But, uh, you know, that's something you see a lot in Europe. People for a weekend fly from Dublin to Spain to go climbing all the time. Um, and you know, they kind of move around to where the weather is at the moment and, and then jump out and go somewhere different. That's that's the way it's done, man. If you want to go ice climbing, you go up to Norway and you make sure you're there when it's in condition. You go to Scotland. You don't go to Scotland for a month because right. unless it's ideal conditions, you're just going to be walking about in the rain if it's if it's not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. So that actually is a really good uh, place for us to maybe switch over and for you to tell me a little bit about winter climbing in Donegal. I noticed this on your website and I like I'd never heard of winter climbing in Donegal and I watched some of the videos and it, it actually looks really good. It looks kind of fun. Uh, so is that something, you know, you said there's large chunks of the year you can't, you know, you don't end up going outside and you're kind of pinned in by the weather, but is that something that happens very rarely when you get a random, you know, sunny day in the winter or is it something that's uh, pretty consistent over the winter? Uh, Donegal in as far as mountains and hills go, Donegal is especially Western Donegal, is pretty much the same as Western Northwest Scotland, except the average height of the hills is 1,000 foot. Scottish hills are on average, say, 3,000 foot in comparison to the Donegal hills, which are under 2,000 foot. So the Donegal hills are smaller in height. They're also further south. So to get winter conditions, you pretty much need... A reasonable freeze followed by, say, five days at minus five, both day and night, and then a good dump of snow and a good freeze again. And when the conditions come, 2009, we had six weeks of that those conditions. I was leaving the house every morning and just going to the next waterfall, soloing it, going home, writing it up, eating, sleeping, going to bed, getting up and going to the next waterfall. Wow. <laughs> and it was like it was like going into the Alps, a mini version of the Alps in which nobody in living memory had ever seen frozen or climbed. And that went on for, like I say, near enough six weeks. Wow. And then the following years, we got a week and then a week, then a couple of days. And just the winter just passed. It was 16 hours of snow. And that was it. <laughs> that, was, that, that was December. Yeah. Yep. I think that that year, 2009 was the year that, uh, you know, I remember my friends, uh, in Dublin were out ski touring in Wicklow, uh, because there was enough yeah. snow on the ground, which is just shocking. <laughs> it was, it was, it was definitely the, the, the most, certainly in living memory, the, the, the most winterized the country's been. It was just, like I say, it was, it was a mini Alps. You just, you just picked another stream, went walked up to it. It was frozen solid. You just climbed a new water, a new cascade, 
uh, it was really good. Amazing. And again, I mean, we're coming back again to the, uh, the soloing thing. Is it, you know, you mentioned this before, I suppose that's, you know, a function of no one in living memory had ever been ice climbing in Donegal. So finding ice climbing partners is pretty difficult. It's the same that there, there are, or there were, there are, there are a couple of people in in the, the county who were who were out at the same time. There was a couple of guys uh, from Creasler, Kevin McGee and uh, Patrick Tinney, and they were climbing, unbeknownst to me, on the north face of Muckish, which is at the other side of the Derry Bays to me. So they were going out on a regular basis and doing new routes, and I was going out and doing new routes. If I'd known they were going out, I would probably of not went up to meet them. And if they knew I was going out, they probably wouldn't have come because it was the normal 22 minute drive to the Poison Glen was taking an hour and 45 minutes. Oh my gosh. It was, it was like Arctic tundra. So to go to where they were was going to take, I would probably have to, to, to leave the night before and sleep in the van to get there in time. So, Traveling was the definitely the crux. The actual yeah. climbing, finding it in condition was pretty easy. Getting there, and then after after about four weeks, it was like the entire county got uh, cabin fever, and there was people all over the place in the ditches and driving on the ice, and that oh, kind of brought an end. To the, uh, the, it was madness. I think the whole the whole county suddenly realised that it's never going away. We've got to get out now, and they all left in the same couple of days. But uh, there the, the, the were there were other people out climbing at the same time. But it, it was just so difficult and a uh, long time to get anywhere that you t- tended to go to the places. And I was just fortunate. I had the, I had the main the main uh, biggest cliffs in the in the country, just normally twenty minutes up the road from me. Whereas the other two guys that were out regularly, they had the north face of Muckish. So we didn't need to travel. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, sounds like kind of a uh, perfect storm all around. Yeah. Amazing. So you, uh, I guess, make your living at this stage as a mountain guide and kind of mountain doing mountain training, um, you know, for various different kind of training programs in Ireland. How did that come about? Did you just, were you looking for a way to sort of... Uh, keep the adventure in your life and and that was the best way to do it for you or um is there a specific thing about guiding that you really enjoy well i i, I worked at sea i was a ship's engineer for pretty much 20 years and the only thing uh, seafarers are well renowned for being alcoholics uh, and loners and not spending much time ashore they spend the whole life in the sea and all that sort of thing the only reason i wasn't the same is because i i, I rock climbed and i hill walked whenever i wasn't on the ships so whenever I got off the ships, I was always out doing stuff in the outdoors. And that's what that was that's what kept me sane from working at sea. But after a certain amount of time, I'd been a chief engineer for quite a number of years. I just got monumentally bored with being at sea. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I decided I was going to stop. At the same time, I met a German guy in Donegal and we climbed a sea stack together. And I didn't know, but he was filming it on a little it wasn't a GoPro, it was a Panasonic thing, and he was filming it in the back of the dinghy, and it was quite rough seas. And when I got home, he gave me the footage, and he says, have a look at this. So I, I, I stayed up all night and put the footage together in a 13-minute monster of a YouTube video. As soon as I put it online, it went, it kind of, and this was like 2007, eight. It kind of went viral as much as it could. Again, yeah, before, in the early stages of YouTube. 
the early stages. But every climber in the country that was out and about saw this video, and I, I just suddenly got people contacting me wanting to go out climbing. So I kind of looked into what you needed to be a guide and just started to hammer through the qualifications. And it really wasn't my plan to do this. It was just, it came about because of that YouTube video. And at the same time, I kind of started to explore the sea stacks a lot more and realized just exactly what the county had. And it just all came together, then ended up writing a guide for the for Mountaineer in Ireland. And so it all comes together without any sort of rhyme or reason or plan. It just all worked at the same time. Amazing. That's really cool. The number of people that I've talked to that uh, cite it all just came together uh, as how things happened is uh, pretty astonishing. You know, I think it, it at least gives me pause to kind of uh, turn off my planning brain a little more often than I am like to do. Well, if you if you if you found something, whatever it is, and you have an enormous amount of fun doing it, the more you do it, the better you become at it. And again, I stress this: this is for every single thing you can possibly imagine not just outdoor stuff and uh, rock climbing but you become quite good at something and eventually you'll make a living from it i mean i made <laughs> i made i made i i took people out today today and for the last three days and in fact if i'm honest for the last five or six years i've been taking people out and almost every day there's been very few exceptions if i didn't need to make money I wouldn't have charged anything because I was having enormous fun. And that's when you know you're doing the right thing. And you, it, it almost becomes awkward at the end of the day, the sort of discussion about money and you're thinking, oh man, I, you just, you just have to, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you don't plan. You just, you just enjoy what you're doing. And before you know it, you find that that's what you're doing the whole time. Amazing. Uh, I think that's, that's just so cool. It's so inspiring. And it's, it's like a really, uh, interesting, it's an interesting counterpoint to what I think a lot of, uh, um, maybe dating myself at this stage, but like, it's an interesting counterpoint to what a lot of young people are told, you know, coming up, it's like, you've got to go to school, you've got to do these things because otherwise you won't be able to get a good job. You won't be able to look after yourself. Um, you know, I think oh, no, no. There's, I'll just, there's, there's something that is actually true. I'm 47 this year, and I've been at sea for 20 years. I'm pretty good at reading people. I'm pretty good at deciding what I'm going to do. But I used to look after seafarers when I worked at sea, and seafarers are not choir boys. They're not angels. So you be, you have to have previous experience of people and situations. So going to school and having a career and becoming, say, I don't know, a doctor or something, and then in your 40s thinking, right, I can't do this anymore. I want to do something else. You can take all those life's lessons and use them in, in potentially dangerous situations with, with clients and uh, friends when you're rock climbing or skiing or whatever you're doing, but you need life's lessons prior to being a guide. If you don't have many life's lessons, you have nothing to draw on. So going to school and getting a career and doing all that sort of thing is absolutely essential prior to doing what perhaps what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I couldn't as when I was 20. <laughs> Not a chance. Right. Not a chance. Okay, okay. So there's a tempering bit of wisdom there in that, uh, you know, you can't just do nothing or do just what makes you happy from a very young age. There is sort of a uh, 
you know, a slight rhyme to it or a slight reason to it. Well, if you if you're t- if you're taking someone rock climbing, and you you need to you need to be able to decide what you're going to do with that person, and what you what you need to do is be able to communicate to them. It's not simply a case of I'm a guide. This is what we're doing. The day has to be structured for them, and the only way you can really do that without harassing them by email for weeks at a time prior to meeting them is in the very sm- short window you have meeting them in the morning and driving or going to where you're potentially going to climb. And it's simply a case of asking very non-intrusive questions and letting them do all the talking. And as they're speaking, you're listening and you're thinking, yep, I'm definitely right. That's what we're doing today. And then when you're actually climbing, going through all the bits and pieces, you're just watching the signs from the people you're with. And that's got nothing to do with rock climbing. That's got all to do with people, people skill, the soft skills and it's equally important to simply being a, a, a good climber, being a good guide is a person that listens. <laughs> and yeah. it's actually the guide when, every, when the people you're with are talking because you don't have to say anything, you just listen. And they will, if you just stand, stand in a room full of people listening, you'll be amazed how much you hear. <laughs> yeah, amazed how much you hear, amazed how much you learn. Uh, but that, I think that's a really great point about guiding. You know, it's something that, um, you know, I think a lot of climbers, younger climbers kind of go, well, I want to climb, you know, professionally. Uh, I'm not in the top 1%, so maybe I'll guide. Uh, but kind of <laughs> unbeknownst to the fact that guiding is not actually climbing, guiding is actually going with somebody, listening, helping them have a great experience, whatever that is for them. Uh, has pretty much nothing to do with your own climbing. No, 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 not at all. You, I, do, I do perhaps, I'm kind of spoiled because a lot of people that come to me they don't have, I'm not in the Alps, they don't have a tick list, they just want to have a great day out. So I, I pretty much decide the night before, based on what the sea and weather's doing, unless we get a really calm spell, what we're doing the next day. And then I, I've got five or six different options. When I meet the people or person, then I just fit the option to the people standing in front of me. And it's it, it works pretty well. They get a great day. And a lot of the time we're doing new routes and we're going to places I haven't been before or haven't been for ages and just revisiting. I'm having fun, man. If I'm not right. having fun, there's no way they are. You know what I mean? Right, right. And that's like not something you're going to get in the Alps. Uh, yeah, I went, you know, with this guide and we did a couple first descents. Like <laughs> The only thing you wouldn't get in the Alps is people saying, right, I want, I want to go. I don't care where we go, just as long as we have fun. Right. There's, there's too much known, if you know what I mean. Everyone wants to do the Matterhorn, Mont Blanc, whatever the, whatever the big names are. Yeah. Hundred percent. Let's just get out and have some, have 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 a laugh. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Well, I guess um, I don't know. I think I've kind of uh, run the gamut of the questions I had for you this evening. Uh, Is there anything else I'm missing that I should ask you about that you want to tell the listeners about? Uh, No, I'm 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 I'm, I've done everything. It's what 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 I've what I've kind of like realized in the last few last ten years when I first moved here, I realized what Donegal had, and every like the last couple of days I've been out in the roasting sunshine with a couple of guys, one from from Yorkshire and England and one from Dublin, and we've done loads and loads of climbing, and it's just been we've been the only people there, on pristine granite on an island, and we're just. Every every day and every week, I'm finding out more about why the west coast of Ireland is so good. I don't know, I don't know how to how to sum up in one sentence, but it's like 
many of the times you feel like you're discovering things. You're not obviously these places have been found before. I mean, people have been born on the islands and all that. But if you take a sport to a place and start doing that sport, you change the dynamics of a place because now people are going to come and do what you've been doing and go and climbing where you've been climbing. And it's it's great that other people are coming. It's it's just working, yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. Uh, you know, it's another impetus for me to get up to Donegal finally. Um, but it's it just seems like such a wild place, such a uh, different place from uh, you know many places that people would be used to seeing. You know, and but also incredibly easy to get to. And you know, in all honesty, a couple hours on the road from Dublin, and you're there. Um, which is a really amazing kind of in between, you know, you don't have to fly to Iceland or go to Svalbard in the north of uh, Norway. You can just show up in Ireland and drive a couple hours and be in what amounts to more or less wilderness. Yeah, yeah. There's, 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 it's like Mayo, uh, just further south of here. There's vast areas of the county. I live in the middle of the biggest blanket bog in Donegal, Tullabegley Irish, and I'm looking out my windows uh, and now, and I can see two houses through through the the gloom. Uh, I'm looking. I'm looking at about an area of what twelve eight square kilometers of bog, and there's a railway station which hasn't been used for forty five years. <laughs> well, that's no... helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, you know what I mean? It's 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 quite surreal when you put into words many of the places, and not just Donegal, but certainly the the west coast of Ireland. It's it's taken a long time to change anything. And that's what makes it a big attraction. You're actually meeting people and you're going to places where very few people go. Very cool. Very cool. So I do, Ian, have a few questions that I ask almost every guest that is on the show. And so you, like most of them, I will ask these questions too. Um, And we've kind of covered this a little bit near the beginning, but um, I think it bears, uh, I think it's a good idea to sum it up here again. So what does adventure mean to you? To su- to summarize what an adventure means to me, an adventure is simply a journey in which the outcome or the the result is unknown until you're safe again or until you're home. So when I when I leave the house in the morning, there's a thought in my mind that I'm not coming back. That's an adventure. It's not a negative, it's a realistic thought. And if everybody who drives a car were to think the same way, they'd realize they're all having an adventure. It's just, we become so used to doing what we do. So using a car, for example, people drive at, drive at 100 miles an hour and think nothing of it. Whereas 100 years ago, it was, un, it was unheard of. You couldn't do that. So an adventure for me is just, going to a place in which I'm making it up as I go along. I do have a defined plan, but I've got so many plans that offshoot from that when I find that I can't actually land on a part of the stack or the sea's a bit rough from the west, so I have to go around to the other side and all that. I'm just making it up as I go along based on over 30 years' experience doing it. But, yeah, it's if it was a guaranteed certainty that I was going to leave the house, do what I planned to do with nothing going wrong, and then come home, I'd find something else to do because that's a certainty and it yeah. doesn't have a same appeal. Interesting. And, you know, along the same lines, uh, you know, obviously 
you're a guide, your job is literally to take people out and show them, you know, even a glimpse sometimes of what adventure means and, and that sort of thing. Why to you is that an important, you know, why is that an important thing to do? Why is it important that other people that may not, you know, get adventure regularly, uh, you know, why is it important that they're exposed to it? Okay, I'll get. I'll give you. I'll give you a, a, an idea, just a, a reference to what why it's important. The most remote place in Ireland, uh, as far as being from a main road, is in the southwest tip of the of the county, and there's a, a about a, say a twelve kilometre coastline there, which no one lives on, and it's over a thousand foot drops into the sea on the Slave Tui Peninsula. I was there oh, about ten years ago in a child's inflatable dinghy so I'm 22 kilometers from the nearest main road the nearest nearest town I'm five kilometers from the the car I'm at the base of a thousand foot cliff I'm in a child's inflatable dinghy with a a 23 year old American girl and we were heading towards this stack and the sea was flat calm and it was just brilliant 20 foot away a killer whale breaches (laughs) breaches out the water in front of us reaches again about 15 to 20 foot to the side of us off to the, the port side and then disappears. Oh my gosh. <laughs> tell me why you, you tell me why that's not an important event. I was just, I was, I wasn't in tears until I looked around and she, the tears were running down the front of her top. And I just turned back. All I said, this is perfectly normal. And then we just paddled on in silence. We just witnessed something that you, I wish I, I wish that that was the reason why I've got GoPros actually because that night I went home I bought bought the two GoPros because I thought if I'm going to see that again I'm going to capture that in footage because right. there was a moment you can't and I don't think I'll ever I'll ever happen again but hey you're, so there's an example of a few moments of your life or that of our lives that me and the girl in which it's why it's important to reconnect with the unknown. That's an incredible story. Uh... God, I can't even imagine. I think I like, was there any part of you that was absolutely terrified that it was going to breach again, just too close? <laughs> I I spend most of my life fighting being scared. When you when you take people out rock climbing, you're 100% responsible for them. You cannot let anything go wrong. You can do, you've got to be on top of things. When that, when that my, my main thought was, I hope that's not a baby. And the, the the mother's now coming. <laughs> oh, good lord! Yeah, the classic problem with uh, bears as well. <laughs> the, the baby breaches again, and the mother mother's the other side of the boat. I, that that's what I thought. I just thought this is going to, this is going to be really really bad. And then it disappeared. The second time it breached, it actually it it it, it got so close it was covered in barnacles. It'd been hit by a ship's propeller because there was marks along its side in regular intervals. Its eyes locked with us for just maybe two seconds, maybe a bit shorter, and it was gone again. <laughs> we just We just walked into, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call it heaven or anything like that, but you'd, you, it certainly felt like you'd had an ex- you'd just met something and done something you're never, ever going to experience again. So that's why it's important to, to get out and explore, because you never know when that's going to happen. That's amazing. And I think that we just have to end there. That's like too good of a story not to just call it good. <laughs> so 
Ian, thank you so much for your time this evening. I'll will absolutely link up uh, your website, which is a treasure trove of amazing videos and photos and guides and all the rest uh, about everything we've talked about here uh, this evening. You know, the climbing, the winter, the sea stacks, the you know, guiding, all of it. So I'll make sure to link that up on the site. And um, thank you so much for your time. No bother, man. No bother. Cheers. Bye bye. Hey everybody, Jeff here again. I just wanted to let you all know that we have finally officially launched on iTunes. So please go and check us out, subscribe to the show, and if you love it, do not hesitate to leave us a review. Um, Even if you don't love it, actually, just leave a review. I'd love to see your feedback and hear what you have to say. And as always, you can always check us out online at livesofadventure.com where we've got the podcast episodes, but I also every now and then write a blog post that you might or might not want to read. So do give us a shout. Let me know what you think. And in the meantime, have a great one and we will see you again soon.